Good morning. Wanted to thank all of you who encouraged me this morning when you saw me and said, oh, good luck with the passage, or I'm excited to see what you have to say. So um, that's very encouraging before you get up and have to declare God's word. So, No, this is a, it's a complex passage, but I hope today we're not so much interested in what was Peter talking about with spirits in prison and what does baptism saves you mean, but what I saw this week is that God has something to say to us through the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, and it's powerful. And so come today, not just with interested minds, but with attuned hearts for what God has to say to you. So as a couple years ago, Melissa and I had the chance to go to a vision trip to India. And Pastor Mark Rogop and Nate Irwin, our missions um, pastor, had shared with us, there's really no place like India. It's unique. You just have constant smells and sights and colors and sounds and people and even animals always in front of you. And it's a crazy place. It's like you're walking around in a National Geographic episode. It's pretty awesome. And one of the things I remember most um, from that trip to India, there are lots of memorable experiences, most of them spiritual. But one thing I remember is that we went to a snake charmer village. Now this village was in the remote area of India. And India has a lot of remote villages. I'm from Shelbyville, that's remote. Well, this was like Waldron. If you even know where Waldron or Morristown is, this is the middle of nowhere. But what was amazing to see is that in this village where the gospel had never, ever been preached, the name of Jesus has never been shared, there was now a church where people gathered who believed in Jesus. And that was awesome. I love that. So that was awesome. Slightly under that, a little less awesome. But then we got to see the snake charmer come out. So that was cool too. And so what happens is the snake charmer, even for the village, this is a rare sight because technically um, it's illegal now. So these are my photos. This isn't a stock photo. This is Dustin Crow live King Cobra video footage. So that was me. Um, so what happens is the, the guy brings out the snakes. He takes off the lid. And then you have these two King Cobras that kind of rear up. And they're going at each other like they're trying to strike each other, anything that goes by, um, they're trying to hit. And so what happens then, and this is even crazier, is the snake charmer, he gets down there and he crouches next to these snakes, and then he just like picks them up, and he's hanging out with them, and then he dangles them around like they're nothing. And then the best part was, and maybe some of you know Todd and Marty Mitchell, they're here at College Park Fishers. Um, Marty was there in the back. They're my small group leaders. So we got to know them on that trip. So then the guy brings the snake over, and he starts like dangling it in front of Todd, like really close, dangerously close. And he asks, oh, do you want to hold it? And Todd, like a good American, already has his phone out, and he's taking pictures, and not judging, that's what I did. Um, Todd was like, are you serious? And then you just hear Marty say, Todd, no, a bad idea. Um, it's a good wife. She did her job and stopped the husband from doing a, a stupid thing. Um, but it was really scary and great all at the same time, and for some reason that stands in my memory. But then I remembered asking the question, like, how is this possible? Like, how do these guys get down there around those snakes and they don't just die? Like, that is not a good career to pick. Um, you have a short distance there. But how do they do that? Do they have some special trick that we don't know about? Or is it they have extra boldness and courage? Well, then what I learned was that most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, these snakes are actually defanged. And so what happens is these snakes can still hiss at you, and they can still strike at you, and they can even bite you with their mouth. But they can no longer 
pierce you and give you the venom. And so what that meant was for these snake charmers, it wasn't that they were super bold or had a special trick. They just knew this isn't going to hurt me. I'm not going to be harmed. I'm not going to be killed. And so that gave them boldness. And so just knowing that fact, that this deadly, scary snake has lost its fangs, gave them the courage to be around it. And one of the things we see in our text today in 1 Peter is that there's a similar spiritual truth to that. Peter tries to actually encourage his readers by reminding them that since Jesus has actually defeated death, sin, suffering, and evil, he has defamed them of their powers. So even though whatever those snakes are, the sins and struggles and suffering of our life are still striking at us, they can't ultimately kill us. They can't ultimately harm us. Christ has stripped them of their power. This then, knowing that, knowing that those things have been defanged, gives us the courage and boldness to press on and to endure in suffering. So as we begin looking at our text, I want you to have a Bible out, even if it's a phone, search Bible Gateway if you need to. I want us to look at the text and see what has God had to say to us today. The first thing you'll notice in verse 18 is the word for, which reminds us that this paragraph today is situated in a context. And two weeks ago, Pastor Mark talked about um, verses 13 to 17 and the encouragement from Peter that you need to be prepared for suffering. If you're a believer in Christ, you are an exile, and suffering is going to come, and you need to know it, and you need to be willing to suffer. But he said that in that darkness, that's where the light will shine. I remember Pastor Mark said it's through opposition that God gives gospel opportunities. So that was the context of our passage last time. He said, be ready for suffering. And I think in our text today, verses 18 to 21, he gives an answer. So how do you endure? How do you have hope? How do you keep going when you know you're going to suffer, you're going to be in exile, and you're going to be persecuted? And what you notice in this text today, what stands out to me, is that Peter finds his hope and his strength and knowing that Christ is our conqueror, that he is the victor, that he is the great king who has died, risen, and ascended to empty sin, suffering, and death of their power. And that's our strength. The point then of the text and the main idea of my message today is that suffering is defeated through the Savior's death. And we'll see that through three points. So how we understand this passage is seeing the logic of Peter First, we're redeemed through Jesus' cross, verse 18. And then 18 to 21, he says, second, we're saved through Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, third, we are strengthened through his ascension. So death to resurrection to ascension. So let's jump in, verse 18. Look with me. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. So with this, we see our first point, that we are redeemed through the cross. It says right at the beginning that Christ also suffered once for sins. One of the things that's interesting, and I wish I could spend more time on this, is that Peter chooses the word suffering. Most of the time in the New Testament, it just says that Peter died, but Peter says he suffered. And so part of the encouragement to you as a sufferer, or Peter to his audience, is that Jesus has suffered, that he knows what it's like, that he's walked in your shoes, and because of that, he can have compassion on you. 
He knows suffering. So you can find comfort in that. But it says he suffered once for sins. The emphasis there on the once, that it's once for all time. It's a one-of-a-kind sacrifice. The point there is that Jesus died as a substitute once, and the work was finished. There was nothing else he needed to do, nothing else we need to add to it. We don't look for atonement and salvation in any other place, but Jesus died once for our sins, and it was completed. He paid our tabs at that one sacrifice, past, present, and future, and we never have to pay again. The text then moves on. Not only did he die once for sins, but it tells us that the shock and scandal of the cross and the beauty and the grace of the cross is that he died in our place and for our sins. It says the righteous one died for the unrighteous one, or the spotless died for sinners. So just imagine that. Before the incarnation, Jesus was the eternal Son of God who was in heaven being worshipped by angels. And then in the incarnation, when he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned once. There wasn't even the tiniest stain on his moral record. He was full of love to every single person he encountered. He had compassion on the weak and the broken. He kept the whole law of the Father. And so because of that, it says Jesus is the righteous one, the perfect one, the spotless one, the holy one. Jesus is the Son of God. And yet, the good news, the amazing news of the gospel is that God set the world up in such a way where even though Jesus never sinned and didn't deserve to die, as the mediator, he could come and give his life for sinners. He can take their sin, their debt, their condemnation, and their death on himself. So even though he never sins, he dies not for himself, but for us as a sacrificial substitute. And we, you and I, if we are in Christ, we can now drink deeply of the cup of the Father's grace because Jesus drank deeply of the cup of God's justice. And all we have to do is receive it by faith, to grab the blessing that is free and offered to us. We believe on Jesus and we trust in him. We declare we have nothing to give. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have a moral bankruptcy, but Jesus pays all our debts and he gives us his righteousness. He fills up our account with everything we need to be accepted and loved before God. So what's shocking about this passage and what should come our hearts or cause our hearts to come alive in worship, it's not simply that Jesus died, but that he as the righteous one dies for the unrighteous, that the God who made all things would come and die for the people who turn from him, that the high king of heaven, this Jesus I described, he would give his life for you and for people, for little, finite, sinful people, Jesus would die. Charles Spurgeon said this, Oh, think that he who was master of all heaven's majesty came down to be the victim of all man's misery. So maybe today one of the most helpful things for you is to remember that the unrighteous ones, that that describes you. Recall, what did God save me from? Even as a believer, sometimes after time we start to assume, I'm pretty good, not as bad as other people, and we become callous to the fact that we are unrighteous. That God, when he looks at us by ourselves apart from Christ, he should have condemned and damned us. 
And so remember that you are unrighteous ones. And so you know your sins better than anyone else. I know my sins better than anyone else. And so the amazing thing is that Jesus dies freely to save you from your sins. This is why in my favorite hymn, And Can It Be?, Charles Wesley is so astounded by this work of grace, the work of the cross. Listen to the way um, Wesley is trying to capture this shocking nature. He says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, the one who caused his pain? Died Died he for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And that's the amazing truth of the cross. Not simply that Jesus died, but he, as the righteous one, dies for sinful people. That's amazing love, and that is good news. I love to watch movies and see, where does this movie either portray part of the gospel, or how is this movie best fulfilled by the gospel? And this kind of image and motif of sacrificing your life, it shows up in a lot of movies and books, and it's powerful and moving. And so often if it's a, a war movie, someone lays down their life for their country or their company. Or maybe it's a, it's a romance movie and a husband lays down his life for the wife. Or there's a hero in the movie and he gives his life up so that other people are saved. And those are all moving and powerful in movies and we watch them again and again because there's nothing more beautiful and more loving than for a person to give their life for another. But as great as those images and stories are, the difference is, in none of those stories, is it a perfect, sinless, righteous person dying for unrighteous, sinful, deserving of death people. In none of those stories is it a person who was rejected and mocked and beaten and turned upon, and he dies for those people. And that's the amazing thing about the cross. It's not just that Jesus dies in our place, but he dies in our place as the ones who have turned and rejected him and are deserving of death. No movie can capture that. And that's the amazing part of the gospel. The cross is uniquely glorious because only there does Jesus die for those least deserving of it. Now, the last thing under this first point of being redeemed through the cross that I just can't skip over is the purpose of Christ's death. Now, if you thought everything I just told you was good news, and it was, Peter's about to lay it on us with even better news. Too often we think that the end game of the cross or the ultimate purpose is that we could get forgiveness or salvation or justification or that we could even get out of hell. And those are good things and needed things. But there's a bigger and better thing going on at the cross. There is a different end game than just our salvation and forgiveness. So look at verse 18 again with me. It says, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, And why? It says that he might bring us to God. The goal of the cross then is that we might be reconciled to God, that we are restored to God. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. We get God, not just that we get forgiveness. Jesus is actually cut off from the Father so that we could be drawing near and brought to the Father. Forgiveness is great and needed, but reconciliation and restoration to God Those are the things we need most, and those are the things we desire most. In the Bible, reconciliation is a term of peacemaking. It involves God taking the initiative to make friends out of enemies. 
so that enmity gives way to embrace. It's not just that you're brought to this neutral state with God, but biblically, reconciliation means both that the hostility is gone and that there's unity and oneness and intimacy. Now, if you promise not to judge me, I'll be honest and share that occasionally, Melissa and I have some conflict, occasionally. We're both sinful and selfish, especially me, and so that does lead to conflict in a marriage. Uh, don't worry, those aren't all like red-level, high-alert conflicts. Some of the time, it's really small. Like, we've been reading a book together, and I get really impatient, so this week I finished the book on my own. That's a small thing, but when you do that in life consistently, that leads to conflict. Um, So sometimes in relationships, conflict is small, and sometimes it's big. But in either case, you probably know what it's like where conflict leads to this separation, where it brings into the relationship this iciness, this distance, the sense that there's a wall between us. And that happens in marriage. That happens between parents and kids. That happens between roommates. It happens on the job between a coworker. That this conflict brings in a distance that you can almost physically feel between you. So in any of those situations, or for Melissa and I in our marriage, what we want is not simply to make up or get rid of the conflict and have the walls come down. It's not just about being okay with each other so we can be in the same house again and it's not awkward or we don't feel guilty. The goal is being restored back into fellowship to again have unity and oneness and intimacy. The goal is that we could again talk together that we could laugh together, that we could sit at the table together and enjoy one another's presence. That's what reconciliation is. And in the Bible, it's the same idea, that reconciliation to God means we get God. We are restored back to Him. We now have His smile and His love set on us fully and forever. So Peter's language here of Jesus bringing us to God, it highlights our access to God because of intimacy with Him. To use one other metaphor, um, sometimes we think of salvation as if, well, this is God allowing us to be in his house or part of the family, but we probably should keep our distance. Like, we should be in our room upstairs and kind of steer clear of him. That's not what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is God the Father being in the living room, and he's inviting us in and saying, sit with me, enjoy time with me, fellowship with me, let's have conversation. That's reconciliation, and that's how the gospel describes our relationship God. So one of the questions that raises for you, for me, is, is that how you think of your salvation? When you think of the fact that Jesus saved you, do you live as if it's just for forgiveness and justification and getting out of hell? Or do you live with the fact that God saved you so that you can know him? The creator of the universe, the redeemer, wants to know you. Or when you open up the Bible or when you pray, Are you just doing the thing, doing the checklist? Or are you coming into that moment saying, God wants me to know him. He wants me to know him so much that he sent his son to bring me into his family so that he could treat me like a father and I could be a child. I know for me, I need that reminder that that is what salvation is. It's being brought to God so we can know him, relate to him, and love him. And if you're here and either you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Christ, or maybe you are, and you've let distance slip in, my encouragement would be the greatest thing we have to offer you as Bible-following believers is not just forgiveness, and we can offer that through Jesus, not just reconciliation, but we can offer you the chance to know God. You were created to know God, and he offers that through Jesus. 
That's what we have. And that is a blessing and that is a privilege. So my encouragement, even this week, how do you apply this? Well, you have to let this truth about the gospel move just from your head as something you believe to your heart. You have to rehearse the gospel to remind yourself that this message of the cross, this promise of forgiveness, it changes how we view everything. Our shame, our guilt, our anxiety, our selfishness, the way we view God, the way we view ourselves. You have to chew on the cross so that it starts to invade every area of your life. That's my encouragement this week. Meditate on the cross and remember all the things you have, including this relationship with the Father. So as we learned last weekend, Good Friday is actually followed by Resurrection Sunday. So the cross is completed through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The key key to the work of Christ or the story of Christ is that though he did suffer humiliation on the cross, he then moved to exaltation through the resurrection and ascension. And the point in verses 18 to 21 that we'll see is that Jesus then provides the, the model or picture of what happens to us. We will suffer in Christ, but we will also experience glory and we will pass through death. So Jesus conquers death, evil, and suffering, and we get that too because we are in him. So again, look at the text. Moving along, we're in verse 18 right at the end. It says, Though Jesus was put to death in the flesh, meaning at the cross, it says he was, a made, he was made alive in the Spirit, which means probably his resurrection on the third day. He was put to death, but he was made alive in the Spirit. And this is probably a good point to pause and just stop and admit and say, from here to verses 21 or 22, it's a pretty complex passage. Every phrase is pretty disputed, and there's a lot going on, um, which is why some of you are like, what are you going to say, or what does that mean? And I get it. Um, It's complex. And so what I want to do today is not go 20 minutes into each point, because these aren't the main points. These are sub-points, and sometimes sub-points are the sub-points. And so I want to summarize what is Peter saying, and why does he say that to the audience. But I don't want us to get so bogged down that we miss the bigger picture of cross, resurrection, and ascension. So in this last phrase of verse 18, he was made alive in the Spirit. It's commonly accepted that Peter is talking about the resurrection of Christ. He was put to death in his body, but made alive by the Spirit with a resurrected body. Some translations even capitalize Spirit, or it says, by the Spirit. The point there is to be similar to passages like Romans 8, 11, where it tells us it's the Spirit that raises Jesus, and that's what's going on here. The resurrection by the Spirit giving Jesus his glorified body, it ties to the ascension, as we'll see in 22, and together they declare that Jesus has the final word over death. That God says he has say over our destiny, not suffering. And that Jesus has won the war, not evil. Jesus is the conqueror. And that's the point of this section. So Thomas Schreiner kind of summarizes this contrast of being put to death in the body and alive in the Spirit. He says, The message for the readers is clear. Even though Jesus suffered death in terms of his body, the Spirit raised him from the dead. Similarly, those who belong to Christ, even though they will face suffering, will share in Christ's resurrection. Or Charles Spurgeon says, there are no crown bearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. So moving into verse 19 and 20, we get to this idea of, proclaiming victory over the Spirit. 
And this is where it gets kind of complicated. This is where you scratch your head and say, so who were the spirits in prison? What did Jesus proclaim to the spirits? What in the world does this have to do with Noah? You know it's a tough passage when baptism saves you is the easy part. Um, So this is the complex part. So there are two probable views. Either of them work biblically, and either of them work with the text. So the first view says that what this means is that the Spirit preached through Noah and his generation. So to the people before the flood happened, Noah was the one preaching to them. Now because they disobeyed his message, they were the ones who were condemned, they were swallowed up by the flood, and now those people are condemned as spirits in prison. The point here would be that Noah was the faithful exile saved by God's provision of the ark and that allowed him to survive the waters of judgment even though evil was destroyed. That's the first view. The second view is the majority view um, held by most evangelical scholars today and the one I'd probably lean into, um, just barely, but lean into. This view understands the text to say, through the resurrection ascension of Jesus, he proclaims or heralds victory over all evil, especially fallen angels. So in verse 19, when it talks about spirits, it, that's who it's referring to. Fallen angels of the devil and evil. This passage then in this context is saying, with Jesus' resurrection ascension, he demonstrates that he has defeated sin and death and suffering. And that makes sense to me because our whole passage is about the work of Christ and how he defeats evil and rescues us. So it seems like that view makes more sense of the text. Also because in verse 19, the way it starts, it says, he went. So it seems like this is referring to after Jesus is raised by the Spirit, he goes and does something, not at the time of Noah. So I think what this is saying in verses 19 and 20 is, at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he takes his place on the throne as king, and he simultaneously preaches or proclaims judgment on evil. So if that's the meaning, you might ask, well, why does Peter say this to his audience? The point was, just as in Noah's day, the faithful eight were saved and delivered by God, while the evil ones were destroyed and judged, so also those in Peter's world who suffer in a broken, fallen world, those are the people that God will save and deliver through Christ, even while evil is judged. And then this leads to baptism, because baptism, baptism is the symbol of this, being delivered and saved and going through the waters as God redeems us. So this leads us to the next part, verse 21, where we deal with baptism. Again, in the text it says this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, everything we have just talked about, this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is doing is he's connecting Noah's deliverance in the ark through the floodwaters to what the Christian experiences as they're delivered through the true ark, Jesus Christ, which is displayed in the waters of baptism. So in the Bible, often waters are kind of a a symbol of a trial of judgment. So you either pass through the waters or you're swallowed up by the waters. So not only Noah's story, but think of the Exodus. God's people walk right through it. You split the sea so I can walk right through it. God's people are delivered through the water, but it's the water that swallows up God's enemies. Or Jonah, he's tossed into the sea because the sea is sort of a, a place of trial. And so one of the images of baptism is that we go through this watery judgment and we come out through it because we're in Christ, which is part of why we do baptism by immersion 
it pictures that. And if you're going to get baptized, the more you splash, the better, because these are supposed to be raging water. So splash around next time you're baptized. So when we think about baptism, that's one image. You go through these raging waters, and you come through, and God has delivered you. But baptism pictures multiple things. It pictures that we have been united with Christ, so we're one with him. We've been baptized into Christ, Romans 6. It pictures that we have died with Christ and risen with him, that we have new life in Christ. We are made new, Colossians 2. But baptism also pictures that we are washed, we're cleansed, we're forgiven, and we're made pure, Luke 3. So all of these different elements of baptism picture something different to us. And one that Peter picks up is that idea of going through the waters of judgment and God delivers you, and for us, we're delivered through Christ. So this next phrase then raises an important question. So baptism corresponds to these realities, but then he says this, baptism saves you. So if baptism pictures that we are united with Christ in his life and resurrection, we come out out of the water, we're saved and delivered, what we have to ask in this text is, does baptism only symbolize those things, or does baptism accomplish those things? That's a big question. In other words, was Peter saying, baptism saves you, so like the act of going into the water, coming out, that saves you? Or is he saying what it pictures saves you? That's a similar question to John 6 and the Lord's Supper. Jesus puts bread and wine before them, and he says, this is my body. And so the question is, does Jesus mean literally my physical body is contained in these elements, or does Jesus mean these are a picture of me and they display truth about me shedding my blood and my body being broken? And that's the question before us today. So what we believe is that you let the Bible interpret itself. And since what we see again and again and again in the New Testament is that Jesus saves us alone, that we're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, we don't believe that baptism, the act, saves you or that it washes anything away. Jesus pays for all of our sins on the cross, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. And as we talked about in Psalm verse 18, nothing else needs to be done. You're saved, you're brought to God, your debts are paid, and you are clear through the cross alone. Peter has just said that. So then it, the question is, what was Peter referring to? Why does he use this language of baptism saving you? And what is baptism? Again, there's, there's a lot that you could say about baptism. Um, seeing the clock, I already have a little bit of the preacher sweat of how am I going to get through this. So I'll be short. But I want to talk a little bit about baptism and summarize it enough so you understand why does Peter say baptism saves you? So throughout the Bible, God always relates to people through covenant. God never just picks a person, and has a relationship with him apart from a covenant. And so you can think of the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or Mosaic covenant or for believers in the New Testament, new covenant. And so in the Bible, God always relates to people. He's in relationship with them. They're part of his people through some covenant. And with every covenant, there's a covenant sign, something God attaches to the covenant to picture, to display a reality. It's to be an ongoing, living, powerful truth. Now, in none of those covenants in the Old Testament does the sign itself actually accomplish anything. None of those signs do something, but they picture something. And so baptism also, it pictures that a Christian has died and risen with Christ, that we've been washed and made new, and that we've been delivered from judgment waters. The realities themselves take place in and through Christ, 
but our covenant sign, it captures that reality, and it conveys that reality. Because it's the sign of what has taken place, it's not uncommon to speak of the symbol as if it is the sign. And that's how human language always works. You speak about the sign as if it does the reality, even though you know it doesn't. Let me give it a couple of examples to hopefully make that clear. Now, Chris already started talking about the ring and baptism and was trying to steal my thunder, so I've got to change this a little bit. Um, but the ring is the perfect example that illustrates this. So when people are married, they're entering into a covenant. And then rings became the sign of that covenant. So when a couple puts on rings, they're saying, we are now one. I belong to you, and we're displaying that. In fact, if you've been at a wedding, you might have actually heard these words. The pastor will say, by this ring, I thee wed. By this ring, I thee wed. Or to use a less churchy example, if you're okay with that, maybe you've heard the Beyonce song, Single Ladies. All the single ladies. So what it says in Single Ladies is, she says, if you like me, you better put a ring on it. What she's saying is, if you don't want me to get away, if you want to get me off the market, then you better put a ring on my finger, which means you should marry me. And so whether it's a pastor saying, I buy this ring, or by this ring, I thee wed, or if it's Beyonce saying, put a ring on it, both of them are speaking about the ring as if it accomplishes the reality, as if it weds you, as if it marries you. And yet we always know what they mean. No one goes up to the pastor afterwards and says, hey, I thought I should tell you that when they put that ring on, like that didn't make them married, that didn't do it. No one says to Beyonce, I'm guessing, like, hey, in your song you say put a ring on it, but that doesn't technically marry you. Like we know what human language is and how it works and metaphors and symbols. And the two are so tightly close together that you can speak about the sign as if it is the reality, even though it doesn't accomplish it. And so with Peter, when he says baptism saves you, that's what's going on. He's not saying the act itself saves you, but the reality behind the symbol, being one with Jesus, him dying with him, being resurrected, that's what saves you. Peter, even immediately himself, he clears this up. So go back to your text, verse 21. Peter says, it's, an, it's not the outward act of washing the body in baptism, but it's an inward reality. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So Peter senses someone, he just says this, he thinks someone might take this, go the wrong way, so immediately he clarifies right here, it's not the act, it's not as if washing saves you or cleanses you, but it's the inward appeal of the heart. It's the faith, it's the internal dimension of trusting in God. John Piper, I think, explains this well. He says, this is virtually a definition of baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual inward appeal to God for cleansing. In other words, baptism is a way of saying to God, I trust you to apply, to the, to apply the death of Jesus to me for my sins and to bring me through the death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus. And then as the verse immediately says, the power then is not in baptism, but the power is in the resurrection. So one thing as we think about this, as we see the meaning of baptism, one thing we should know is how important it is. So it's not that baptism redeems us or saves us or cleanses us, but as Chris mentioned, the New Testament has no concept of an unbaptized believer. 
Every person who trusts in Christ takes on the sign and says, I belong to him. I've experienced this reality. And so if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, my encouragement would be to no longer delay. Not because it saves you, not because it makes you a better Christian, but because that's the way we put on the covenant sign. It's where we say, I belong to Jesus. He has bought me. My life is his. To not do it would be sort of like a husband saying, even though I know this ring represents that we're married and you've asked me to wear it, I'm not going to wear the ring. It's a way of, in a small way, creating distance and separation. And so baptism, which is one of the most joyful occasions in your life, which we just saw, like hearing people's stories, their testimony, and then seeing it and knowing what it represents, that's a powerful, beautiful image. So my encouragement to you would be, if you haven't been baptized and you are in Christ, to take that step. Talk to Chris or myself. We'd love to help you take that step. So we've talked about the cross. We've seen the power of the resurrection. And the third point, the final point, is that we are strengthened through Christ's ascension. Verse 22, jump in there with me. It says, Jesus, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the resurrection in verse 21, it returns to Peter's line of thought in verse 18 where he said, made alive by the Spirit. So he picks up with that thought. And the point is, he's talking about our primary theme again. That through the resurrection and ascension, Christ has victory over evil and victory for us. So Peter wraps up this section, verses 18 to 22, by restating that Christ triumphs over all evil spiritual forces, which are the angels, authorities, and the power, when he is resurrected. So he's resurrected and he ascends to the right hand of God. And in doing so, that is the declaration that Jesus has won the battle, that Jesus has won the war. So Jesus not only redeems us, he not only defeated death and gained victory, but at the ascension, when he takes that rightful place on the throne, it's a reminder that he now rules over all, that Jesus has power over all, that he's sovereign over all, and that he has triumphed over all things. When he takes his place on the throne, it is the universal announcement to us, to the world, to evil, that he is in power, that death is defeated, that suffering is defamed, and that evil will not win, that Jesus is the conquering king. So I want to mention two other verses that say something similar. So Colossians 2, I'm going to skip to verse 15. Same idea. It says, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Hebrews 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So through the work of Jesus and his death, resurrection, and ascension, we not only get forgiveness and reconciliation, but his death defeats evil. His death overcomes our suffering. His death overcomes the power so we know it won't kill us, it won't ultimately harm us. Christ triumphs over evil and he takes the power from it. So two weeks ago we quoted the second stanza of Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That was a great stanza. Well this week, if we look at the third stanza, we notice that Martin Luther went to this truth to find strength 
and endurance. This gave him hope that Jesus had conquered death. This is what Martin Luther sings. He says, And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So as we close, considering the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, one of the applications that stands out to me today is a reminder that what we just saw, that Jesus is in power, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is on the throne. If we believe these things and we trust in this God and we follow this Savior, the question is, can you trust Him with the hard things in your life? So ask yourself today, what is the source of pain or suffering or hardship in your life? Are there fractured relationships where someone you love has wounded you? Are you or a family member walking through a health struggle where it feels like there's no end in sight? Is your marriage starting to crumble, your kids are straying, your job is changing, or your bank account is dwindling? Has God withheld something you want? A relationship, a career, a child, a dream? In all these things, whatever your suffering might be, this text puts under our feet the rock-solid hope that Jesus Christ defeated evil, that God knew what he was doing when he let Jesus die. He had a plan that would lead to victory, and lead to exaltation. All things are under his control now, and he can be trusted in the midst of whatever it is you are walking through. So with Peter, let me tell you today, with the rest of the Bible, that you can trust him. Trust the one who gave his life for you. Trust the one who is now on the throne ruling. Trust the one who defeated evil and has victory. Whatever suffering you're walking through during this season, and whatever threatens to rob you of joy and hope, set your heart on the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, and the triumphal ascension of Jesus. Through it, we are redeemed, we're delivered, and we're given strength knowing that Jesus has all the power. Find hope in knowing that the suffering was defeated through the Savior's death, and because of that, we have hope and can endure in suffering. Would you stand and pray with me as we get ready to sing? God, we do thank you for this message. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We know our sin. We know how undeserving we are. But we thank you that Jesus paid for our sin. Thank you that our sin has been dealt with completely by Jesus. And God, we thank you that Jesus was raised and ascended. And because of that, we can have hope. We can find strength and endurance even in suffering, even in pain, because it is not ultimate. Jesus is our conqueror, and he has won the battle. So God, as we sing, we worship you, we worship Christ, we worship the Spirit because of this victory we have. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.